Welcome to UIDP Conversations, where we have candid discussions about partnership and collaboration across academia, industry, and government. I'm Sandy Ma with UIDP, and today I'm joined by Matt Ridley, who is perhaps best known for his column in the London Times and contributions to the Wall Street Journal, as well as his most popular book, The Rational Optimist. What you might not know is that he's also a member of the UK's House of Lords, where he has served on science and technology committees, and he's also author of a new book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Welcome to UIDP Conversations. Thank you for having me on the show, Sandy. So the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry with a pandemic. Research entities around the world set their plans aside and on hold because of COVID. What are some of the innovative structures and pathways that you've seen research organizations put into play in light of the pandemic and its demands? Well, I think there are uh, two things that are happening. One is obviously redirecting uh, their energies onto the virus itself and vaccine development and uh, testing development and all the medical diagnostic devices and so on. And I've seen some pretty impressive re-engineering of university facilities, but also private sector facilities. I mean, some of the some of the companies that built new ventilators or uh, developed new diagnostic devices in record-breaking time uh, were very interesting. But then there's the other aspect, which is businesses that have nothing to do with medicine or health, but are adjusting to working online. And I think that's going to be an even bigger consequence. And I think in some ways this is going to cause a burst of innovation in terms of how we work and where we work um, that will have a lasting effect. Because some kind of critical mass has been reached with respect to the number of people using these online video conferencing facilities, for example. Most of us were not on um, these various Zooms and Teamses before this. And it's a bit like when email started in the 1990s. I remember I was quite an early adopter of email and I kind of pretty well gave it up actually because the only other people on it seemed to be academics. And, you know, it wasn't really very useful for communicating with people outside a relatively narrow field. And then about a year later, suddenly everybody had an email and it was indispensable to have one and suddenly we're all on it. So I think once you reach a critical mass of the number of people using it, uh, you know, whatever it is, an email, a mobile phone, or in this case, video conferencing, I think uh, it will then become much more adopted. Um, it's interesting how people are obviously uncomfortable with a lot of the aspects of video conferencing and saying it's no substitute for the real thing, and they're right. But at the same time, it has its conveniences, like you don't have the travel time and so on. You know, I've read your recent column about your hope that the COVID-19 nightmare might soon be over. Uh, but I recognize that there were a lot of concessions to the fact that things are not going to be the same, that we will still be socially distanced. And that's not distanced. And that's not such a bad thing in a lot of ways. Um, I think you referenced lower flu rates in Australia specifically. And that was a really good thing because people are finally washing their hands and maybe not going to work when they're sick and other actions that we've learned to take. Are you also hopeful that the economy is going to recover fairly quickly? I'm finding it very hard to read. Some of the sectors seem to be showing uh, really quite rapid rebounds. Uh, retail, for example, uh, seems to be rebounding quite well. There's evidence that people have uh, paid off a lot of credit card debt during um, lockdown. Um, and all these suggest a more V-shaped recovery. 
But then when you look at what's happening in terms of employment, the number of people being laid off or who are going to be laid off when the furloughing schemes come to an end, um, uh, and then you look at what's happening to things like the hospitality industry, the theatres and things like that, it, it, it really does feel like we, we can't avoid a very deep recession in most uh, Western countries. And of course, we're all connected. And if there's less demand in the US because uh, it's in recession, then that affects the UK and Europe too. So uh, I think there's no doubt that it will be a, a very bad recession but I think it might be one of those ones that's very bad but very short because with luck, we can unleash all sorts of animal spirits on the way out of the recession through innovation. Well, that is a great segue, um, both luck and, uh, and innovation to your new book, How Innovation Works. Um, in the book, you argue that there is a fair amount of serendipity and also collaboration that's involved in the process of innovation. Um, and that typically doesn't happen in isolation like we have now. So how do you think the research community is faring today in these times of pretty extensive isolation? Um, well, I think it is, it is very difficult for everybody. Uh, the, the dependence, for example, of the research community on conferences uh, has been uh, greatly damaged, but it has migrated online. Um, there was that strange pause the first month of lockdown where, you know, we all had nothing to do and life was very quiet. It was very pleasant in some ways. Um, but then suddenly people, you started getting invitations to online conferences, online meetings, etc. And so uh, it, it did come back and there are the the problem as you know is that that the fun of a conference is not the formal sessions it's the gossip in the corridors and the right. chance meetings and as you say serendipity and i think the evidence suggests that quite often your the solutions to your problems come from unexpected directions um, and you won't get those unexpected directions if we're all meeting deliberately online because you won't organize to meet the people you don't expect to meet you know you're not going to be meeting new people as it were online to the same extent um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a website called Innocentive, which posts problems, uh, industries or other organizations post problems and invite people to help them sol solve them in exchange for a reward. And it's very interesting analyzing how that's worked before, I'm talking about before the pandemic, because surprisingly often the solution has come from someone completely outside the industry or the sector. Um, and that, I think, is a pattern that you see in uh, innovation generally. I like to say that Teflon and Kevlar and the post-it note are all examples of things that were invented by people looking for something completely different. I mean, in the case of the post-it note, the guys at 3M were trying to make a, a strong permanent glue, and they came up with a weak temporary glue, and they sort of thought, well, that's useless. And then one of them wanted to go to his choir practice, and he thought, you know, this is perfect for keeping my place in my hymn book. Um, if I just put some of this glue on the back of bits of paper, um, uh, it'll work really well and it won't damage the hymn book. And the post-it note was born because the bits of paper he used was yellow. Yes, yes, it's a fantastic innovation story. And you have several really wonderful stories in your book. You kind of trace the history of innovation um, using using specific examples from history. It's, it's fascinating read. Uh, one of the things that you also explore is the concept of infinite improbability. 
and its relationship to energy and innovation. Can you explain that concept to us? Because I found it fascinating. Yeah, well, uh, the, the, one, of, one of the great themes uh, of the world is the second law of thermodynamics, which essentially says that uh, the world becomes more and more disordered and random uh, gradually, but it can be reversed locally only by putting energy in. The more energy you put in, the more order you can create and the, the more disorder you can get rid of, as it were. And if you think of, you know, your, your suitcase after you've gone on holiday, it starts out ordered, it ends up disordered. But with energy, you can put it back to being ordered again. It's the same phenomenon. <laughs> so now, when you think of all the structures in the world, whether it's a building or a machine, or indeed a virtual structure like uh, a, a piece of software or a conversation, um, they're non-random. You know, they are ordered. The words are in the right order or the bricks are on top of each other in the right position. Um, th these don't come about by chance. And what's happened is innovation has enabled us to use energy to reverse order, uh, to create structures that are ordered, which essentially means improbable structures. Um, and so I borrowed this phrase from uh, uh, Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where there's a uh, spaceship called Heart of Gold, which is powered by an infinite improbability drive. And I say, well, hang on, we've got an infinite improbability drive here on Earth. It's called the process of innovation, the process of turning um, random things into non-random things that are useful to us. Which does take a lot of energy. Uh, and, and it and also takes... In, energy is indispensable to this. And that's why I start the book with the invention of the steam engine, because it may seem like a rather clanky old-fashioned innovation that happened a long time ago, but actually it was the first time that we turned heat into work. And I think this was the key to the whole Industrial Revolution and the great enrichment that followed. Uh, because before that, we had work. We, we could use our muscles or our oxen or the wind or the water um, to, to move things around, to do you know, physical work. Um, or we could use wood or coal to produce heat. But there was no connection. I mean, they were both forms of energy, although people didn't realize that at the time. But along comes Thomas Newcomen in the Midlands in uh, England in the early 1700s, and he designs the first working steam engine, which is just a very inefficient machine using a lot of coal to pump water out of a coal mine. But the point is, it's using heat to do work. It's causing movement by, by the use of heat. Uh, and, from, and then it gets better and better and better. And James Watt comes along and George Stevenson puts it on wheels for the, for the railways and so on. Uh, and then this guy, Charles Parsons, who lives in the same part of the world I live, lived in the same part of the world that I live in, um, he creates the turbine, which is essentially just the, uh, I mean, this is 170 years later, but it, it's just the, uh, the perfection of the steam engine. And the turbine is at the center of everything we do. It's in all our power stations, it's in our airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's providing the energy that gives us the improbability of our structured lives. Well, the important thing for me was to take away from that, that uh, we do have to employ a little bit of energy to instill a little bit of order. And there is a contrast with, for that with me with the idea that innovation also is fed by serendipity. So 
I see the application of the concept of infinite improbability that you offer really corresponding with university industry research partnerships in that you have to put energy behind those partnerships. You have to put some structure there, but you also have to allow room for serendipity for the creative part of innovation to happen. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is, this is, and, and uh, it, it probably is a little bit of a paradox, but I think it's, it's more interesting than that because um, what it's essentially about is the freedom, the freedom of the innovator to change direction, to change his mind, to make mistakes and start again. Um, without that, you don't get innovation. Nobody does innovation from first principles all on his own in an ivory tower uh, and achieves a good result. What happens is that people go out there and make mistakes and eventually get it right. You know, you can tell the stories of uh, the Wright brothers or Jeff Bezos and Amazon as a string of failures. They made disastrous mistakes at every step, and yet they learned from those mistakes. And so in the end, they were able to, 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 to do it right. And they, of course, learned from other people. So the freedom to pick up ideas from other people, the freedom to respond to what the consumer is telling you, you know, the freedom to feedback information from, from your uh, your your market, as it were, and I, I write in the book about some lovely examples of user-generated innovation, where the innovation is is actually being done by the consumer. Um, there's there's some wonderful um, software for monitoring the um, uh, sugar blood sugar content of of diabetics remotely, which came from the parents of diabetics children you know and things like that so um the, all these freedoms are very important and if you think innovation is something that you can plan in advance and direct and tell where it's going to go i think you'll you'll make mistakes uh, i think you have to allow it the freedom to change direction and to 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 encounter serendipitous um uh, chances but you still need to put energy in to to get all those things to happen it's just the the energy the, the energy gives you the options, it doesn't give you the solutions. That's an important point, because I think that we often see that, um, as you say, innovation, it's rarely planned, it's never really managed, um, that sort of thing. Um, but are there steps that governments and industry and universities and research entities can do to foster innovation? Yes, clearly there are things that uh, governments and uh, institutions can do to encourage innovation. Although it's surprising how vague most of our recipes are. Um, <laughs> we just say things like let a thousand flowers bloom or get out of the way or create a standard or set a goal or offer prizes. Um, uh, some of the things we do are, in my opinion, not very effective. So, for example, the intellectual property system is I think on the whole not encouraging innovation as much as we think it is. Um, patents and copyrights have got to the point where they, they positively hinder innovation because they get in the way of the exchange of ideas that, that, that you need. Um, but other things that we, we do are effective. It's quite instructive to think about what happened in the United States in the late 1990s under the Clinton administration when uh, e-commerce was just getting going. A series of bills were passed through Congress which were unbelievably libertarian and permissive. You know, their, their, their purpose was to say, out you, off you go guys, into the 
wild west of the internet start companies and see how you get on and these are the rules and the rules are pretty light touch and uh, you're not going to be responsible for the content of your websites and all these kind of things and actually without that without setting the rules probably e-commerce wouldn't have happened but without setting the rules as very permissive it wouldn't have happened either or it would have happened eventually but not not to the same degree so i think that's quite a nice example of activist government but being very permissive and libertarian in the way that it it, it sets it sets the rules and if you contrast that with say the way we have come to regulate the nuclear power industry where we've essentially said before you build a power station we want to approve your design which is fine but in order to approve your design you're going to have to spend nearly a billion dollars and take nearly 10 years getting your, our approval and then you can't change your mind halfway through building it you can't say a better material has come along or we've thought of a better way of building this or this bit didn't quite work because if you do you've got to come back to us and start all over again that kind of regulation has effectively killed innovation in the nuclear power industry which is why we're still building reactors to the same designs as the 1960s mm. so the you know, there's good reason why we want them to be ultra safe and so on but in fact it's probably made them less safe that that form of regulation so so those are two extreme examples of how to handle innovation and how to um um encourage it or discourage it but of course there's many many other ways and on i'm i'm talking about government there but there's many ways we could talk about individual institutions as well have you seen some structures with some um, some relaxation of some of those guardrails in the current environment that you think might go forward and continue? Well, I think there's quite a nice example in the case of drones, of unmanned aerial vehicles, which nobody foresaw that they would essentially be a consumer good. Uh, everybody was thinking of them in terms of military uses and things like that. But then suddenly, uh, starting actually with a French company, people said, you know what, we could sell this to photographers and um, landscape surveyors and farmers and all sorts of people. And sure enough, drones have become very widespread. But they started with no rules. And then there were accidents or mistakes. And so suddenly, people started imposing more and more rules, you can't get out of sight of it, it can't go above 500 feet, you can't use it within five miles of an airport. Um, etc etc you know it mustn't weigh more than a certain amount in case it crashes um, and the trouble is each rule is built around some previous accident so you have to have another accident then you have another rule and then before you know where your other rules are quite long and laborious uh, and they've got to the point where they're actually getting in the way of companies that really do want to use this to help farmers and other things um, uh, so they've actually started to dismantle some of the rules or at least rationalize them. And essentially all you need, and John Chisholm made this point to me, who's a, a, a entrepreneur, all you really need is a rule that says, fine, use a drone, but if you do harm, you're liable for it. <laughs> if you hurt right. someone or cause a problem, then we'll come after you. Um, you've got to work out what that means and put the burden onto the innovator to, to solve that problem. Um, with, I mean, I exaggerate a little bit. Of course, you've got to have some some other guardrails, but that feels like a, a, a an era an area where we started out unregulated. We became too regulated. We're now look, rationalizing regulation. Well, it, I guess there's a learning curve. 
we have to kind of learn what the innovation means and what the effects are um, across society before we know what the guardrails should be. And actually, there's another good example, which I was involved in a debate in the House of Lords late last night about, uh, where we were trying successfully, I might add, to persuade the government um, to uh, consider changing the rules on gene editing in agriculture. This is the business of very, using very precise technologies, CRISPR technology particularly, to, to make uh, subtle changes in, uh, in plants that improve their use as crops. The US and Japan and Australia, most of the world says, as long as you're not introducing foreign DNA, you don't have to be subject to the ridiculously um, difficult rules that cover genetic modification. You can basically treat it as if you're a, pl a plant breeder with a better tool. Uh, the same, you have to go through the same regulation as you would for plant breeding, which makes sense because the point is, you're doing exactly the same thing as you do with plant breeding. You, you can't tell if something's been produced by old-fashioned plant breeding or gene editing. All you're doing is cutting out a bit of DNA. Britain has inherited from the European Union uh, a rule that says, no, no, uh, anything gene edited must be treated as a GMO, which means that nobody's going to do it in the UK, which means that we're going to not get um, insect-resistant crops and uh, things like that, which means that we have to go on using more pesticides, which is bad for the environment. This was the argument I was making. So it's a, it's a nice case of where regulation is actually getting in the way of technological improvement uh, and we're trying to um, improve it. And luckily we seem to win the argument last night. Well, that's great. So are you still an, op an optimist? I am on the whole a rational optimist still. Um, the reason for that is I wrote a book in 2010 called The Rational Optimist. And a lot of people said then you can't possibly be an optimist. I mean, look what's happening to the world economy in the current recession. Um, the great financial crisis. And I said, well, okay, let's see. And sure enough, this has been an incredible decade for developing countries in particular. Not so good for the West or America or Europe. We've had sluggish growth. But if you look at what happened in Africa in the last 10 years, it's truly extraordinary. It's gone from being a continent that many people were prepared to write off 10 years ago. I make this point in the, in the book. I'm surprised to go back and find that I was making this point. You know, why do people keep saying Africa can't have economic growth like Asia has had? Well, now it's got it. I mean, Ethiopians have doubled their uh, average income in 10 years. That's unbelievable. That's the kind of thing Indians would, well, Indians and Taiwanese and Koreans were doing a generation ago. Um, so it has been a good 10 years. But every year that I go around the world talking about rational optimism, somebody says, ah, oh, you can't be a rational optimist now because what about the war in Syria? What about the war in Ukraine? What about the Ebola epidemic? Uh, what about the SARS COVID-19 epidemic? <laughs> uh, so uh, I've, I've learned to say, well, yeah, it's a setback, but uh, on the whole, things are still going in the right direction for most of humanity. I mean, there are areas where I'm not as optimistic as I was, and one of those, funnily enough, is the internet and social media. Where I was pretty utopian 20 years ago, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I thought this was fantastic. We were all going to be able to access all information. We would see each other's point of view. And kumbaya, it would all be peace and harmony. Um, hasn't quite worked out like that, has it? <laughs> uh, it hasn't. Do you have any final words you'd like to add? I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm really looking forward to your uh, 
conference in September, and um, I'll speak to you again then. Thank you to Matt Ridley, author of How Innovation Works and How It Flourishes in Freedom, for joining us today for UIDP Conversations. And join both of us September 21st through 25th for UIDP Connect, our virtual conference that connects you with the influencers behind innovative R&D collaboration. Learn more at UIDP.org.